What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, well, this is a great resource just for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. If you're watching us on TV today, you can participate as well. Our email address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Gabinski, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to uh, uh, ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just uh, put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. You? Doing reasonable, thank you. Glad to hear that. Staying cool during the summer months, Well, I hope. you know, that just means staying inside, so yes, to some extent. A good plan. Here's a uh, question we received from Mary. Please help me to refute Protestant friends who say if Mary died, which of course they believe, it was because, quote, the wages of sin is death, and she was a sinner like the rest of us. Any thoughts there? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So that's, of course, just an assertion. Yep. It's just an assertion. It doesn't have any evidence behind it. I mean, uh, and so we're really, this sort of boils down to the battle between uh, two conceptions of revelation, because the sinlessness of Mary is a revealed doctrine. Uh, it's one that we can infer from sacred scripture, but is expressed most explicitly in sacred tradition. And uh, uh, Protestants also infer their doctrine of Mary's sinfulness from their reading of the Bible. Mm. Um, they start with different premises about the way the Bible should be interpreted, and then they generalize uh, those things to the Blessed Virgin Mary. But there's no text of Scripture that says that Mary sent. So both, both camps, uh, they start with their conception of Revelation their, and their conception of the interpretation of Revelation. And so, you know, rather than, than swapping verses with Protestants, uh, which I find often to be not very useful because when you engage in a Protestant in those terms, they just assume that you understand the nature of Revelation the same way that they do, and so you, you don't really get at the root. It's not, it's not so much a difference about what we think about Mary, mm -hmm. is my point. It really boils down to a difference about what we think about the Bible and what we think about divine Revelation and the way we come to know it, right? And, uh, and so that's, that's the level at which the ultimate conversation we need to have with Protestants is. Uh, but when it comes to sacred scripture and the teaching about Mary, I mean, here's some things that we can, we can see. So the, um, the scriptures present Mary in a number of places in a really special relationship to Christ and the human race that the fathers of the church understood to be um, the condition of Eve. She is like the second Eve, as mm. Christ is the second Adam, Mary okay. is the second Eve. Christ gives 
He is the second Adam insofar as from him comes forth this progeny that are reborn in a spiritual manner, not a natural manner. Christ talks about the need to be born again. And he's the head of this new race, even as Adam was the head of the, our race physically. Well, in the same way, there's a there's a archetypal figure in the new humanity uh, that's maternal. And so the book of Revelation, chapter 12, we see an image of a woman who is, we are told explicitly that if, that she will give birth to the child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that's language from the Psalms mm-hmm. uh, that refers to the Messiah. So, well, we know who that woman is. Who yeah. is this woman that gives birth to the Messiah? And then we're told a few passages, a few verses later, that she's the mother of all those that believe in Christ. So it, it doesn't take a real work of genius to figure out that there is an archetypal relationship between Mary and the Christian people, even as, as there is between Jesus and the Christian people. He's the head of the church, and we're members of his body, but Mary is our spiritual mother. Christ seems to echo this teaching himself in his own ministry, especially in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, John chapter 19, when he refers to Mary as a woman, not mom, you know, not Mary, but woman, mm-hmm. um, which seems to echo this passage in Genesis 3.15, when the Lord prophesied that eventually would come uh, 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 the, the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, this archetypal woman that down through the centuries descended from Eve, but greater than Eve, who would undo the curse of Eve and the disobedience of Adam. So the fathers of the church reading these texts said, well, this, this really makes it seem like Mary is the second Eve. And that was the title that they, under which they venerated her. And we continue to venerate her under that title for centuries. Mary herself recognized there was something special about her vocation when she prophesied by the Holy Spirit that all generations will call me blessed. And, of course, the angel Gabriel said that she would be full of grace, kakaratamine in Greek. It's one having been graced to the full. It's the only place in Scripture where that word is used. And what is the end and the purpose and the goal of grace, if not to uh, create within us a participation in the sinlessness of Christ? St. Peter says that explicitly, that we, through the participation in grace, we can come to share in the divine nature. Well, Mary had that to a super eminent degree. She is the only one that's full of grace in that sense. And so the, the, the image of this archetypal maternal character who stands at the headwaters of this new race of reborn spiritual men, made having received the plenitude of this sanctifying grace, it's not a stretch to go from there to, well, if Christ said the end of the life of grace in the kingdom of God was not to sin but to be perfect, and he does in fact say that, that we would ascribe that to, uh, to the mother of all those that would enter into that condition. Uh, And then, of course, that's the explicit teaching of sacred tradition as well. Fantastic. Mary, uh, thank you so much uh, for your your question today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to do uh, several emails on each one of our programs, but of course the primary focus today is your phone calls. Love to hear from you today at 833 888-EWTN. 288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic in the first place. Again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening overseas, please dial 1-205-205. 
271-2985. Calls coming in right now. Back in a moment with lots more. Call to communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. Call to communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Andrews. If you have a question for us, please call this number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Interesting email here from Jerry, David. Uh, Jerry says, you recently quoted that Peter is the rock that Christ would build his church. So where is it in the Bible, that is, how does the church know that Peter made it to Rome, Italy, and if science or carbon data, carbon data testing were to prove the remains under St. Peter's Basilica were not that of Peter, would it matter? Um, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. So th- there, there isn't really any explicit biblical mention of Peter having made it to Rome. Uh, that's really the domain of sacred tradition. Mm-hmm. This is what the fathers of the church believe. This is what they said happened. And the the interesting thing about the claim to Roman primacy, which is very early, so you can read in the second and search the third century fathers, discussions about which which uh, uh, Christian see, which which bishops see should be should have the primacy over the universal church. And it, there's universal agreement that it should be Rome. And uh, you read this in Tertullian, you read this in, in Irenaeus, very early second century writers. And when the question is raised, well, why Rome? There's this one answer given, uh, and that is that, well, it was Peter C. Um, uh, it wasn't until, say, the late fourth century, at the Council of Constantinople, there were some Byzantine theologians living in Constantinople that said, well, you know, really it was because Rome was the seat of the empire, and now that Constantinople is the seat of the empire, we should be the head of the church. So they, they, they tried to argue that position. It was a novelty, and the rest of the universal church said, eh, we don't think so, Constantinople. <laughs> That's the wrong category. You're making mm-hmm. a category. It's not because of Rome's position in the empire. It's because of her relationship to St. Peter. Um, and when, when you read early church polemics on this question, universally, that's what it comes down to. This is Peter's C. Even detractors who reject the doctrine of Petrine uh, jurisdiction like that recognize that that's the orthodox position that they're rejecting. So a minute ago, I cited Tertullian. Tertullian was a North African writer in the second century uh, who famously left the church. He, he was Catholic, and then he got kind of frustrated at the pope um, because, interesting reason, he got mad at the pope because the pope would reconcile sinners more than once. <laughs> that was the big issue. Wow. Right? So there was a faction, there was a hardline puritanical faction in early Christianity that said if you sin grievously after baptism, you get one shot at repentance. It's called the controversy over the second repentance. You get one shot at repentance. And then if you screw up again after that, you know, it's, it's, it's two times and you're out and we're not letting you back in the church. And the Pope said, uh, no, no, sorry. You know, Christ said 70 times 7, and that's kind of a metaphorical way of saying as many times as necessary. Mm. So we're going to reconcile even grievous sinners as often as they need to be reconciled up until their deathbed. And Tertullian didn't like that, so he said, I'm, I'm out of here. And he wrote a treatise against the Pope's position, and he said, now I know what you're going to say, Mr. Pope. <laughs> you're going to say that because you sit in the seat of Peter and have the keys to the kingdom— 
that you have jurisdiction to make this. But let me tell you a thing or two, Mr. Pope. That That's the way that Tertullian, the now schismatic heretic, put it, right? Yeah. And I find that fascinating because it shows that even those that didn't like the authority of Rome recognized that that was the orthodox position they were rejecting. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about all this about carbon dating? Oh, yeah. It wouldn't matter a hill of beans. It wouldn't matter a hill of beans because Rome's claim to authority is not that we found the bones of St. Peter and made this great discovery. And, oh, guess what? We, you know, we, we were digging around looking for Peter's bones, and lo and behold, we found them in Rome, and therefore we'll... Ma- no, no, the, the claim to Roman primacy is there before the question of whose relics are, are, are these particular relics. So it okay. really wouldn't... It, it would have no effect on it. I mean, this is, this, is, this is something that comes to us by way of divine revelation through sacred tradition. It's not dependent on, you know, some scientific discovery in the 21st century to validate. All right, Jerry, thanks so much uh, for your email. And uh, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Teresa in Columbus, Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind today? Oh, hello, Dr. Anders. Thank you so much for taking the call. Uh, I was just recently at a, a breakfast with four other Catholics, and one of them mentioned we do that Adam and Eve, everyone knows as Catholics, they were not real humans. And she proceeded, no one said a word, and I'm, I'm just kind of confused because the Prado Catholic catechism wasn't that good. And I'm like, how do I interpret that? They were not real people. I know they were to teach us, but I, how do I interpret that, Dr. Anders? Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So um, we're talking here about the difference between the theory of monogenesis, which is the doctrine that the human race that we have today descended biologically from a single human ancestral pair, uh, and polygenesis, which is the idea that the human race that we currently are partakers of descended from, you know, multiple units of the species and not just that single pair. And the, the difficulty for monogenesis uh, is that the genetic data, uh, it does not seem to confirm the theory of monogenesis. So if you just look at the DNA of humans, it doesn't look like we can, we can get to monogenesis. Uh, and so that that's what poses the problem for Catholic theology. Now, here's what the Church has said about that question, uh, and here's what some theologians have sought to do with it. So Pius Twelfth wrote an encyclical in the 20th century called Humani Generis on, on the uh, origins of human species, uh, when he, where he confronted the challenge of Darwinian evolution and uh, other problems that you might uh, other theories that might suppose a threat to the monogenesis in the sacred scriptures. And he said, here's the problem for Catholics. The problem is not what the book of Genesis says. And I'll, I'll get to why that's not a problem in a second. The problem, says the Pope, is actually what the book of 1 Corinthians says. It's a New Testament problem, mm. not a first couple chapters of the Bible problem. And 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Christ is the second Adam, and the doctrine of the redemption, more than the doctrine of creation, seems to presuppose a special relationship between a head of the race spiritually in Christ and the, the head of the race, as it were, uh, responsible for the fall. 
So not because of the book of Genesis, but because of the doctrine of the redemption, hmm. the, the theory of monogenesis is, has to be held as more than just a theory um, because it seems so central to the way we understand our relationship to Christ. But the Pope left the door open a crack, and the crack basically goes like this. Any theory you have of human origins must protect the unique dignity of Christ as the second Adam in the Catholic account of salvation. And so there are theologians that have interpreted the Pope to mean Catholics just have to believe in monogenesis, period, end of paragraph. Um, I think the majority opinion among Catholic theologians is, no, they have to do their theology in such a way that what's protected by monogenesis, namely this unique relationship that we have to Christ as the second Adam, is preserved. And so that's that's kind of where the, the debate is in theology right now. Mm, okay. Um, but uh, when it comes to the interpretation of Genesis itself, like the rest of the Bible— the Church teaches that every passage of the Scriptures has four senses, not just one literal sense, but four senses, uh, the, the most important of which are the spiritual senses, the moral sense, the anagogical sense, which is the one that sort of points us to the life of heaven, uh, and then the allegorical sense, which is the one that points us to Jesus, to Christ, and to the New Testament. And the, the most important way of reading the Bible is by way of the spiritual sense. And some of the fathers of the Church um, took that to mean that passages in the Old Testament should not be taken literally or at face value. Uh, Origin of Alexandria, very famous for this position, he said of the book of Genesis, well, obviously we shouldn't take it exactly literally, because among other things it says that God walked in the garden, and God doesn't have feet. (laughs) So, you know, you can't take it at that level of literalism, Right, right? right. Um, and I could give you, St. Augustine of Hippo, a Western uh, Latin theologian, says of the book of Genesis' first couple of chapters that he understands them to be an allegory about the creation of the church more than a literal account of the creation of the space-time universe. And I could give you a lot of other examples as well. Another contemporary interpreter of the book of Genesis who really excels at this spiritual reading is Pope John Paul II. If you've ever picked up of John Paul II's theology of the body. It's all about the anagogical and moral and allegorical reading of the book of Genesis. And the Pope says explicitly within those lectures that it's less about sort of the biological history of the human race than it is about her spiritual destiny. We're really, ultimately, that's what Pope Pius XII mm. was interested in as well. So um, uh, uh, it, it, the, the strict answer to your question is... Um, if a Catholic believes because of the doctrine of redemption and the teaching of Pius Twelfth, I must hold to the theory of monogenesis. You're allowed to do that, to be sure. That's a safe opinion. That's a safe theological opinion. But you have to do it in a way that accommodates the scientific evidence, because we can't ever have faith and reason in conflict, mm-hmm. right? So you can't just have faith and throw out reason. You can't have reason and throw out faith. You have to bring the two into harmony. And so one dominant view for those who hold to monogenesis is that that uh, while within our DNA we may have evidence of a polygenetic evolution, at some point in history God would have infused the soul into a single human pair 
to stand, as it were, as the spiritual head of the race. So you can, but there's no way to verify that with reference to the DNA record or the fossil record. You just have to take it on faith that God infused the mm -hmm. soul, the spiritual soul, into two people to serve that function, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the redemption and the fall. Uh, and that way you can preserve sort of both uh, both sides of the antinomy. And that that's kind of my comprehensive answer. Teresa, is that helpful for you? Oh, wow. That's, that's delving into it. I, that's a lot. Yes. Good. Thank you very much. You're Thank all, you. You're all set. Uh, Teresa, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. We just got a caller from uh, Louisiana. This one actually makes me a little sad, David. Uh, she says, he or she says, Dr. Anders, we're very close to the end of our time with our dog. I am finding conflicting views on what happens to dogs after they die. Can you help me? Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. And as somebody that has, what do we have? I think we have eight pets in my family. Aye, aye, aye. So I'm quite sympathetic uh, to you. And I'm sorry, I really am. It can be very difficult to lose a beloved pet. Um, so the church teaches that animals have souls, but they don't have immortal souls. Only humans have immortal souls. Mm. Animals do not have immortal souls. So, uh, you know, the dog is not promised, say, the glories of the beatific vision, uh, nor threatened with the pains of hell. Right? They have mortal souls, not immortal souls. Uh, and that, of course, leaves some people feeling bereft, because are you saying that there's no way I can see my dog again, and I'm going to really miss her for all eternity? And so here's what I would offer you by way of consolation. First of all, um, when we have the vision of God, which is the beatific vision, we will, we will know God uh, as he is in himself. That's the promise of St. Paul in hmm. his letter, first letter to the Corinthians. And God, of course, has a perfect, timeless knowledge of everything that exists. And so I think that whatever it is that you love about your dog, even the, sp the specifics of your dog, will be present to you in your experience of the beatific vision, God, of course, knows your dog eternally. And you'll know your, God, your dog eternally through the beatific vision, if mm. not in the flesh. Anything that you feel like you might lack in relationship to your dog will be fulfilled in the beatific vision. And, of course, uh, nothing is stopping God from simply recreating your dog with a, with a new if not immortal, but everlasting dog soul in the restoration of all things. Like, there's no promise in Scripture that he'll do that, mm -hmm. but we know that all creation longs for the sons of God to be revealed. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. There will be a renovation of the natural order that would include animal species, and uh, if it were necessary to your happiness, God could certainly say, well, I'm going to recreate... Not, it's not... It's not the, the continued existence of the same pet through immortality, but he could just spontaneously recreate that pet with an everlasting, uh, but but not ordered to God's soul. Okay. So, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you can hold that out as a possibility. Okay. I'm not, it's not a promise. It's not in scripture that he'll do sure. that. Sure. All right. And uh, thanks so much for your question. Uh, Michelle, watching us on YouTube today, says, I'd like to know why or how there are different versions of the Ten Commandments. Okay, thanks. So the, the primary difference that you're going to find in English Bibles, 
um, well, you could be asking actually one of three questions. All right. So one would be, why do Protestants and Catholics number the Ten Commandments differently? Okay. That might be one way. All right. The other would be, why does Scripture itself contain two different versions? So we have the one in Exodus 20, and then we have the one in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some—this rarely I get this question, but occasionally there's, a, there's another list of commandments in the book of Deuteronomy that seems similar to, but is in some respects very different from the Ten Commandments. Why do we have that one? So. I'll try to get to those. It looks like i got a break coming up after the break. Very good. Uh, so, Michelle, sit tight. We will continue on the other side of the break with the answer for you. Uh, we'll also get to Carol, a first-time caller from Florida, and lines are available for you as well at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. Glad you're with us for EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We have a couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for David, uh, or if you would like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, in any event, the number is 833-288-3986. So here's that question again from Michelle watching on YouTube today. I would like to know why or how there are different versions of the Ten Commandments. Right, okay, so that that question could mean several things. Okay. Uh, she might be asking about why Protestants and Catholics number the commandments differently, um, and they do, uh, and that's because in the 16th century, Protestants wanted to break out the prohibition against graven images and make it a standalone commandment uh, as if to undermine the Catholic practice of venerating icons and images. Okay. Um, and so they had to conflate the two separate commandments on coveting your neighbor's wife and coveting your neighbor's goods in order to keep it at 10. Mm. Uh, but there was a theological agenda. There's no exegetical reason to do that. It was a theological reason, a polemical reason, to take aim at a particular Catholic practice. Uh, the Catholic tradition, of course, has always been to conflate the Protestant first two commandments uh, into a single commandment against worshiping other gods, which includes the worshiping of their images. Sure. And uh, and we also think that wor- that coveting your neighbor's wife is a categorically different kind of sin from, say, coveting his golf clubs. <laughs> and so it makes sense for those to be separate. But you'll note that in the text of the Bible itself, um, there there's no numbering. You know, it doesn't. It, you know, Moses doesn't say number one, right. number two. You know. Uh, there may also be a question there about, well, why do we have, uh, say, the Deuteronomy 5 account of the Ten Commandments and the Exodus 20 account? Um, and then there's actually an Exodus 34 account that differs in some respects, too. Um, and, and there, you know, most scholars think that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are not the work of a single author, you know, who sat down on a Sunday afternoon and decided to write the history of Israel, but are reflective of. Um, diverse Hebrew traditions that go back, you know, centuries before the composition of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, in Deuteronomy explicitly, presents itself as a kind of recap of what takes place in the first four uh, books of the Bible. And so it makes plenty of sense that you would have, um, you know, different accounts of the same event and sometimes told from slightly different points of view because there are different theological emphases 
uh, being made. Okay, very good. And we thank you so much, Michelle, for watching us today on YouTube. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Congratulations going out to another longtime member of our EWTN radio family. And that would be St. Michael Radio. They are in Great Falls, Montana, celebrating their 17th year with us. How about that? Congratulations to Tony Rausch and his team at KSMR from all of us here at EWTN. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Carol, a first-time caller in Florida, watching on EWTN. WTN Television. Hello, Carol. What's on your mind today? Hi. First, I want to take a moment to thank both of you for putting on such a lovely show. God bless you both. Thank you. You're welcome. And secondly, I'm. what's uh, most important to me is I have some friends who are Protestant, and they're good religious folks, and we've been sharing religion and our faith going back and forth for a while, and I'm at a point right now where I don't want to lose them, <laughs> and I don't know that my skills are up to par to show them the way of making the right turn and going down, uh, you know, Jesus' way. So um, I need some help because I want to be sure that I direct them to either material or a person, someone who could take them the next step, and I, I don't want to lose their interest because they're very interested in the faith. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I have a number of ideas for you. Uh, one uh, is that I would really encourage you to get your friends interested in this radio network and this television network, um, and in, and I would invite them to talk to me. I mean, we take phone calls all the time, and sure. I, this is actually a show designed for non-Catholics who have questions about the Catholic faith. I would love to uh, to answer their questions and to dialogue with them, so they're always welcome to call me. And if not, just you can send them uh, podcasts of this show mm-hmm. and other shows on EWTN that mm-hmm. speak directly to Protestants. Another show on EWTN that's really popular with people coming into the church or converts or Protestants even um, is The Journey Home uh, uh, with uh, John Mark Grodi and previously yes. with his father, mm-hmm. um, Marcus Grodi, and it's all about the stories of people who have left Protestantism and other traditions and become Catholic. So people will explain their reasons for doing so. And, and normally the guests are fairly learned, both about Catholicism and the traditions from which they're mm-hmm. coming. And so that's mm-hmm. a really good, helpful introduction for a lot of people. Um, if you want something that's a bit more textual and not and not a video or audio resource, um, the uh, of course the EW10 website has a lot of great materials. Um, uh, a partner of ours, uh, Catholic Answers, Catholic.com is that mm-hmm. website, has great materials answering all kinds of questions about the Catholic Church that Protestants might ask. Uh, something a bit more academic, uh, the website calledtocommunion.com uh, is designed specifically to dialogue between Protestants and Catholics about the unique gifts of the Catholic faith and answer Protestant objections. Um, in terms of books, uh, of course, Dr. Scott Hahn is a perennial favorite among converts and Catholics. His book, Rome Sweet Home tells the story of his conversion to the Catholic faith. Um, But your idea of putting your friends in touch with a person, I think, is a great idea. And so, in my experience, the best person for a convert to talk to, or a potential convert, is another convert. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I think it's very likely that in your parish, there are probably some Catholics in your parish who are converts from Protestantism, 
And some of them are going to be more or less articulate about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not as interested in getting them in dialogue with someone who maybe maybe they just they joined the church because their wife was you know Catholic or their family or her family was Catholic and he was just sort of checking the box to please people. That may not be as helpful. But someone who's an intentional convert that really studied and read their way into the faith, I promise you there will be those people in your parish, and some of them will be known. Not all of them. Some of them will be known to your pastor or your deacon. And so you might ask around, hey, are there some folks in our congregation that, uh, that fit this description? I've got some people I'd like them to meet. So, But I think that's an outstanding idea. God bless you, Carol. Thank you so much uh, for your call today. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Helen now, a first-time caller from Newark, Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Helen, what's on your mind today? Hi, thanks so much for taking my call. I listen to this uh every day, and you guys are great, so I thank you for that. Um, Thank you. My question, uh, we had Transfiguration, obviously, Gospel um, this Sunday, and I've wondered many times, uh, you know, it says that uh, Jesus um, was talking with Moses and Elijah and conversing with him, and I just kind of have wondered how Peter, James, and John knew that that was Moses and Elijah, you know, whether it was just something that they were inspired to believe or if Jesus said Moses, you know, actually used the name. So that's my question. Yeah, that's a great question. And, of course, the Scriptures do not say. They leave us totally in the dark on this mm. very question, and it's one that's puzzled me as well. My, my inclination, my first guess, is the first one that you mentioned, namely that somehow or another the Spirit of God made it known to them that this was Moses and Elijah. Uh, maybe when we are in the next life, maybe when we have the vision of God, uh, then our minds will be so illuminated that we'll have an immediate intuitive knowledge of everyone's personal identity. And maybe some intimation of that, some foretaste of the beatific vision was afforded to the apostles. There's a tradition in the church that sees the light of the transfiguration as being analogous to the light of per- spiritual illumination. Mm. That's the end of, of our spiritual exercises and the ultimate reward of grace. And so maybe there's some kind of immediate illumination of the soul that took place that enabled them to recognize the identity. Or, you know, the second option you suggested is also plausible. What if Christ identified them? Hey, guys, check this out. Moses and Elijah, what do you know? <laughs> you know, that's possible. Uh, but the scriptures just don't tell us. Helen, thanks so much for your call. Glad you're checking in there from uh, St. Gabriel Radio, one of our great partners. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number again, 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. Here is Al now in Panama City Beach, Florida. And uh, Al is listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. Al, what's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hope you all are well today. Um, here's my question. I have um, breakfast with a Southern Baptist men's group, and it's the church I used to go to before I came home to the Catholic Church, thanks to your radio show. God bless you guys. And um, I was hit with a question about infant baptism, and my um, limited response was, well, it." Um, I, I hit him with a few things about the jailers with Paul and then Um, I said, it is a seal of the Holy Spirit um, for an infant, and it is the sign of of the covenant versus circumcision. 
And that's about all I had. So I was, I was looking for some help because I have breakfast in the morning, and uh, I figured you were the man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, I don't know about being the man, but I can definitely <laughs> help you. Okay. So here's, here's the thing that you have to hit before you hit infant baptism. The biggest difference between the Baptist and the Catholic is not the age of baptism. It is the nature of baptism itself. And you're not really going to address their objections unless you get at the underlying assumptions in their view of baptism. See, the, the Baptist does not believe that the sacraments work ex opere operato. That's the Catholic doctrine. It means from the working of the work. Um, the Catholic position is the sacraments are valid and efficacious ex opere operato, independent of the worthiness of the minister, and in some circumstances, independent of the worthiness of the recipient. And uh, because there, it's a direct action of the, the, the sacrament is a medium for the direct action of the Holy Spirit in the soul of the person receiving the sacrament. Uh, now, Baptists don't believe that. They think that the only function of a sacrament is as an outward sign that signals something to be believed and embraced. And so baptism for the Baptist represents the washing of the soul by the Holy Spirit uh, and repentance and faith in Christ. And so since it's only a symbol and its, its efficacy, its function is only to, to indicate something to you consciously that you can then personally embrace and make a part of your life, uh, the baptism of an infant, they hold, would be to no purpose because the, the infant's not going to be able to understand and rationally assimilate uh, this sign without having mm -hmm. heard the gospel explained and mm -hmm. the, what the symbol means and how it connects to the gospel promise. There's no point in doing it. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of odious to baptize an infant, according to the Baptist position. So that's what we have to get at first. And there, I would say, let's look at what sacred scripture actually says about baptism. Uh, Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life. And dying and rising with Christ are not mere symbols, they're not mere metaphors. They are the reality of what Jesus calls the new birth, being born again. Baptists like to talk about being born again in water and the Spirit. That's mm. Jesus' language. Paul says that takes place in baptism. Uh, Peter also says it takes place in baptism. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that baptism now saves you. Book of Titus speaks about the washing of regeneration, right? So these are these are spiritual realities that are conveyed to the soul by the sacrament. Acts chapter 2, the people said to St. Peter, what should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. Now, Baptists typically like the first part of Peter's admonition, <laughs> repent and be baptized. They, they don't think much of the second, for the remission of your sins. Mm. Or if they do, they want to ascribe the remission simply to the repentance and not to the baptism. But, of course, Peter doesn't say that. And then you are right to point to Acts chapter 16 in the Philippian jailer where whole households are baptized. And, of course, Peter goes on to say the promise is not only for mm -hmm. you, but it's for you and for your children. Mm -hmm. So, But if baptism works ex opere operato, if it works just by the direct action of the Spirit upon the soul of the recipient, um, then, of course, we would want to baptize infants because we want our children to be in Christ we want them to be members of his body, the church, and to grow up in the care and nurture of the Christian community. We want them washed of original sin and, and, and to be filled with sanctifying grace. We want them to become priests in the church. I don't mean ministerial priests necessarily, but 
You know, we're a kingdom of priests. Our whole lives are to be offered in sacrifice. Mm-hmm. All of these gifts are given to us in baptism. We want to afford our children of those. And then, of course, as they do grow older, their knowledge of the faith becomes more and more explicit. Uh, but implicit faith is sufficient for salvation. So, you know, you don't have to have an explicit faith in order to, in order to be saved. You just have to have an implicit faith. And there are hints of that in, uh, in Scripture itself, where St. Paul says, for example, that it is possible to pray with your spirit and be edified without your mind. He says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians. He says, I can pray with my spirit, but I can also pray with my mind. Well, there's a kind of prayer that takes place non-cognitively. There's a kind of connection to God that takes place entirely implicitly. Uh, and then there are those souls who will never attain to cognitive clarity about the content of the gospel because they may have some mental deficiency that's not their fault. I have yet to meet the Baptist that wants to suggest that those people don't have a saving relationship with God, right? So that's where I would start. Appreciate your call, Al. Thanks for checking in from uh, Panama City Beach. Beautiful area there. Going to get to another beautiful area, Fairhope, Alabama, in just a moment. First, let me tell you about something beautiful available now from EWTN's religious catalog. It's the Stations of the Cross Triptych. This miniature desktop triptych features the Stations of the Cross, the center panel, a beautiful gold-embossed print of the resurrection of Christ. Smaller images of the 14 Stations of the Cross appear on the side panels with their corresponding Roman numerals. The triptych is is made of wood, excuse me, with two brass hinges, gold foil accents. It's imported from Italy, five inches wide, three and a half inches uh, deep. So do check that out. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. As promised, let's go to the beautiful Fairhope, Alabama, and here is Carol now, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Carol. What's on your mind today? Hi. Thank you, David Anders, for all that you do. I've learned so much from you. Um, my question is, when there, when Mary uh, had Jesus as a baby and Joseph was awakened during the middle of the night by an angel that said, you need to flee, and because of that, of the slaughter of the innocent. Um, but then it says that Jesus was taken back, I assume, to Jerusalem for the presentation or when he was circumcised. So does that mean he did not stay in Egypt very long because he had to get back to Jerusalem? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I think there's a, a couple of ways we could handle this. Um, we, we know that the flight into Egypt took a long time. Right, it took a while because he stayed there until those seeking his life were dead. That's what that's what we're told in, in St. Luke's Gospel. Uh, in terms of the presentation, I, I, it makes sense. I mean, this is all speculation, right? This is because mm-hmm. the the texts don't spell this out. We just have to use our brains and think about it. Um, when someone tells you get up and flee to Egypt, you know, like it takes me, you know, longer than that to get ready to, you know, go to Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't you don't make a uh, you know, a, 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 an international move and uplift your, you know, uproot your family in a day. So I think you, there's maybe time to get a presentation in there mm-hmm. in the meanwhile. Yeah. Um, but uh, there is a, there's an ancient tradition in the church of harmonizing the gospel accounts, which are notoriously difficult to harmonize. I mean, to be honest with you, they, they, they sometimes seem to present events in a way that's difficult to see how they can all fit into the same timeline. And there are reasons for that. But there are those who have attempted to do it, and I'll give you a couple that you might find interesting. Probably the most accessible 
Uh, Fulton Sheen, believe it or not, wrote A Very Celebrated Life of Christ, where he gives you a sort of a coherent narrative of the mm-hmm. whole thing with a lot of theological commentary, of course. And I, I bet you anything, I don't know this, but I bet you anything we have that in the EW10 religious catalog. I think we do. Fulton Sheen's Life of Christ. Uh, another one that uh, was dear to the heart of, of Pope Benedict was Romano Guardini's book, The Lord. Romano Guardini, The mm. Lord. Um, and uh, when, uh, when Pope Benedict wrote his own study of the person of Christ, he references Guardini's book as a, as a kind of model for him. And, of course, there are ancient authors like St. Augustine of Hippo wrote a harmony of the gospel, so you'll find that kind of literature. Carol, thanks so much uh, for your call today from Fairhope, Alabama, beautiful town. Let's go now to uh, Matthew in St. Charles, Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network, AM 1460. Matthew, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, and following up with the earlier transfiguration, is it safe to assume that Moses and Elijah were in purgatory since the gates of heaven haven't been opened up yet. I appreciate the question. Uh, in fact, it would not be safe to assume they were in purgatory. Uh, they were not in purgatory. They were uh, someplace that the church calls the Limbus of the Fathers. The Limbus of the Fathers. Uh, that was a temporary place where the souls of the righteous dead of the Old Covenant were kept, uh, not in punishment, unlike purgatory, awaiting the ascension of the Messiah to open the gates of heaven. Uh, so we would, not, we would not ascribe them to purgatory because we don't think they had much in the way of personal sin to be purged or penance to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they were not yet in the beatific vision. They were in the limbus of the fathers. Appreciate your call there, Matthew. Thanks for checking in from St. Charles. Here's one now from Fern watching us on YouTube today. She says, my question is why humans need a god? All other living things happily survive and live on earth without one. Yeah, thank you. So there is a sense in which uh, I, I think you mean the question, and I'm going to answer it that way, but in another way also. Uh, animals and plants and rocks and trees absolutely need God in the sense that they need, um, they need, they need a metaphysical first cause of their existence. And I don't mean first cause in terms of the temporal past, like the way they need a big bang to get going. They need a first cause right here and now. There needs to be something undergirding mm-hmm. the, all the physical processes of nature in their integrity, a kind of unity to the whole show um, that's presupposed uh, in every moment of existing. And so Dionysius, the Areopagite, ancient uh, Christian theologian, put it this way. He said, God is the being that beings have. St. Thomas Aquinas said that God is the very act of being itself. Uh, you know, any act of being, you have, uh, you have some complex reality that depends upon more basic fundamental forces. So, you know, I'm, I'm a biological machine at one level uh, that depends on, uh, of course, my prior history of biological evolution and my genetics, uh, which depend in turn upon chemistry, which depend in turn upon physics, which depends in turn upon... What now? (laughs) You see, so everything needs God in the sense that none of us are the sufficient explanation for our existence. But I think what you mean is, why do we have to have conscious knowledge of God? Right? Why do I have to worship God? Why do I need to be aware of God? And here, the difference between other species and the humans is acute because only humans have a spiritual, rational nature. You know, I have, I have a lot of animals in my home that I'm very fond of. I have a golden retriever at home named Harry, who's just like my best friend and loves me terribly. Um, Harry does not need to know anything about God to be happy. 
All he needs me to do is throw balls for him in the backyard continually without ceasing. 24 hours a day. He will never get tired of this game. And mm-hmm. I don't do it. He stands at my feet and whines. And I actually, <laughs> I'll point him out sometimes. He'll be outside the door and I'll say to Jill, I'll say, mm-hmm. behold, he stands at the door and barks. <laughs> you know, which is what he does. Yeah. He doesn't have, he'd have conscious knowledge of God because he doesn't have an immortal soul. He doesn't have a rational soul. He doesn't have free will. He has no moral responsibility. He has no moral relevance to his actions. They're just instinctual. All right. But the human person is made God's likeness and image. And, and so Aristotle, the pagan philosopher, put it this way in his metaphysics. He said, all men by nature desire to know. What do we desire to know? I mean, I don't just want to know, you know, what's going on with the Kardashians. I, I want to know the nature of reality. It, it's built into the fabric of, of human knowing and human willing that we want to know the causes of things. Uh, we want to be a relationship. We want to be in relationship to things that are meaningful. Uh, and uh, and that's a cognitive relationship to things that are meaningful, and and the, the 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 ultimate good of the universe, the common good of the universe, is the good of God Himself. And so, to have conscious knowledge of that fulfills the aspiration of the human intellect and the human will. Saint Augustine said, "Oh, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in Thee." And so, look, I'm I don't want to be naive. I don't want to suggest that hey, just become religious and you will solve your uh, your your existential angst, because there are plenty of religious people that experience existential angst. Uh, nor do I want to say that that only Catholics uh, have a kind of rest in some sort of uh, you know uh, metaphysical ultimate. That's clearly not true too. But some, but the but the drive to religiosity. Uh, William James, the famous psychologist, said the religious mindset is the one that believes there's an order in the universe and thinks the point of our life is to align it with that order. I think it's a pretty good definition of the religious sense that really undergirds, I think, most of human striving. Once you get beyond, you know, putting food on the table and procreation, uh, we all seek for something, and that something ultimately, as a Catholic, I would argue, is God. Fern, thanks for checking in now on YouTube today as we're heading out the door. A quick question from Jim. Do you have any comments on the theory of the cosmic Christ? Uh, that that is really probably too big a question to handle in too thirty much. seconds. Too right? much. Um, so, yes, I do have so, have opinions, but there's no way I can summarize them. So why don't we put that off and come back to that question maybe tomorrow? Let's do that tomorrow. All right, All right Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Didn't mean to throw you a curveball there. Right, we, we leave everybody on a cliffhanger. I like it. Don't forget, you can uh, check out EWTN's uh, Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio for our live broadcast and uh, also the, the encore of the same at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com radio and then just click on the podcast button. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks for joining us. See you next time on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day. God bless.